Dialogues is the show where we discuss the big questions about life. Who are we? How do we live a good life? And what does it all mean anyway? This week, we're joined by public health practitioner, comedian, and beekeeper, Alanta Coley. Hello. Did I pronounce that right? Coley. Yeah, Collie. look, I'll go with any name, really. <laughs> okay. This is fine. Thanks. Collie. <laughs> and we'll be talking about bees and wondering what gives us humans purpose in life. So, Alanta, thank you very much for coming on yeah, the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, so you're a beekeeper. I am, And yep. And you live in a, a city. I Melbourne. do, yeah, yeah. Bees are the best. Uh, what do I like about bees? Um, they're amazing communicators. So there's, I think science is only just starting to understand the means by which bees actually communicate to each other. So they've got very complex methods of communicating sources of nectar and pollen, teaching each other things. So as, a, as far as insects go, they've got incredibly complex, um, yeah, intelligence around communication. And I think there's some really interesting research being done at the moment trying to sort of find out what's a bee's intelligence even if like and it's a weird idea to even be able to compare intelligence across species because it's a little bit of a two-dimensional idea really mm. um what does intelligence even mean for an insect but i, I love that uh, i love the role they play in the sort of broader ecosystem um and you know they've got a little bit of a bad rap around you know the, the whole stinging people <laughs> thing but um when you get to know them <laughs> they they really only only sting if they are, are defending the very hard worked for honey that they've <laughs> been gathering for many months so you know you can kind of relate to that really we were talking before uh before you came in, uh, Joe and I, about how bees do communicate. And I was telling Joe, I saw this about how they dance yeah. to express, uh, give directions to other yeah. bees. And I was I was like, um, maybe I could ask, uh, do bees dance for fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They apparently, there was a study sort of looking at bees uh, and happiness and depression. Wow. And um, bees under more stressful situations do... Uh, express behaviours which scientists are interpreting as depression. Wow. <laughs> That's, That's incredible. <laughs> well, what kind of circumstances lead to the depression? Uh, like scarce food sources or okay. really difficult sort of environmental conditions. Uh-huh. Um, sort of, you know, things that reduce a bee's joy in life. So, you know, <laughs> may- maybe they do dance for fun. Just, just like a heavy bee night out can, can cause mass swarm-like <laughs> depressions. You have to be careful, though, if you were dancing for fun because you'd be giving all sorts of signals off to other bees. and you Confusing know. people. Yeah. They're like, I thought there was some really good pollen out here. Yeah, yeah. I was like, nah. I flew seven kilometres. <laughs> oh, dude, I was just stretching. <laughs> we went all that way. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's amazing. You were saying, Joe, about like how bees, um, like if there's any relationship between how bees function socially and how humans function socially. Yeah. So I guess I guess yeah. that that question about whether bees dance for fun came from the the idea that bees seem to have very specific purposes in life. Mm. So so their their places within the swarm and ro- what role they perform yeah. for that swarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it kind of gave gave rise to the idea of, of whether or not they actually have free time or, or their own <laughs> interests. Um, so, you know, there, there are certain parallels that we can draw between bees and humans. Um, obviously, we're, we're more complex organisms. We like um, to think so. We, yeah. we like yeah. to think so. We, we think very highly of ourselves. Um, but, of course, we, we have purposes as well, but perhaps they're slightly less defined than they are for the bee community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. you're inter- entering some interesting uh, philosophical territory here. Um, it's sort of a lot of people talk about hives as and as the organism and bees as being just like almost like cells within that organism mm. um, in that way that we have immune systems where individual cells will sacrifice them for the good of the whole macro-organism, and bees will do the same. So a a, a sort of, I mean, I haven't read up too deeply in bee psychology, but the idea that um, one bee will will defend its, will lose its life in order to defend the hive, and I guess you could probably draw some parallels there. And (laughs) (laughs) Definitely enough American war films to Mm, suggest mm, as much. Mm. Um, But it's interesting from an evolutionary perspective because humans have generally... I mean, we're sort of set up biologically to have a great amount of genetic diversity within mm. um, 
uh, within the human species, whereas within a hive, there's a single mother, and that's the queen. And there'll be six or seven different male bees, drones, that have contributed to the genetic stock to make those bees. But essentially, all the workers and all the drones inside a hive are brothers and sisters, at least half brothers and sisters. And the strength of that means that because they're so genetically similar, they have that capacity to understand each other, communicate and collaborate because they're very, very similar. So um, bees are psychic. Is that what you're saying? There's less parasites. Yeah. I, I was doing some reading. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Go on. D- does that relate to the idea that there's less of the imperative for individual bees to, to really need to pass on their individual uh, DNA? It's yeah. because the, the DNA is more shared. So you can still... Mm do your job in kind of surviving and passing your D- passing on your DNA without procreating yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I guess you're pass- in terms of passing on your DNA, uh, it's about the survival of the hive because 80 to 90% of the hive are worker bees, which are female, but they're only female technically in the sense that um, if the, qu- the queen is the only one laying eggs in the hive, one mm. bee one out of 50,000 bees is the only one doing the egg laying. And unless the, if the queen, if the queen dies, they go into emergency supersedure and some of the worker bees can start laying eggs, but because they've never been fertilized, the eggs are actually clones. So they're just producing clone bees, which will keep the hive going, but it's an emergency situation. So you're not have so most bees aren't having sex is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> the queen is, and the, that's that's why there's less party dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. less uh, fermenting the honey, getting meat out of it, having a good old time. <laughs> sounds quite and dry. A, a simpler kind of a life yeah. though. I feel yeah, yeah. Really more aesthetic. structured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just enjoy their gardens and their sun. So I don't want to. We don't want to be the whole thing about bees, but I do just want to ask, like, how did the how does the queen bee get um, replaced when yeah. She does die. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's a good question. So uh, if the queen is showing signs of slowing down and queens can live for a really long, like three to eight years, I've heard, like I've read different accounts of how long the queen can live. Right. Um, if she starts uh, slowing down, the worker bees, and I have no idea what biological mechanism makes this happen, mm. they'll start producing new queens in the hive. And the way you produce a queen is by continuing to feed royal jelly to some of the larvae. So every larvae is fed royal jelly, which is this kind of rich, proteiny, hormony kind of um, food source that stimulates in a larvae development. If you keep feeding a larvae that, it turns into a queen. Um, oh, that's why people buy royal jelly like humans. And yeah. <laughs> they're like, I'll become a queen. <laughs> it's not a life you want, really. She's laying no, thousands of eggs every day. It's, yeah. Yeah, she's serving her hive. Yeah, that sounds pretty stressful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when, um, when the old queen's getting old or there's some issue with the hive, they'll make new queens and then there'll be a fight inside the hive. And the queens um, have a very long, a smooth stinger and they'll actually go into battle with each other. And they'll Whoa. either kill, one queen will kill the other. There might be five or six in one batch and they'll all just fight it out. So it's a bit sort of Hunger Games-y wow. um, style Game of Thrones. I haven't actually watched either of those. Com- so it was a terrible <laughs> use of metaphor, just hoping that that was accurate. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, or they'll agree to disagree and one queen the old queen will leave with half the hives and that's what when you see a swarm. Wow. Uh, and then the new queen will be, reign over her new domain and be the queen. Oh, so that's like a really pivotal kind of like social moment that you're seeing yeah. when you see a swarm flying. Yeah. Like bad stuff has gone down recently. Yeah. It's a been a coup. Bad, yeah. or, bad yeah. or good. Like the hive has got so full of, of bees that it was time for some of them to go and so they'll make a new queen. So there's a few different things that can trigger a swarm. But a swarm is kind of how a hive gives birth and that's where you get your genetic diversity across different hives as opposed to within a hive, if that makes sense. Okay. And that's the whole thing about a hive being more like an organism than the individual yeah, bees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Have you learned things from being a beekeeper that you can apply to your life that, you Ooh. know, your human social life? Like, oh, oh gosh. <laughs> um, 
well, yes, you should work together. Yeah. <laughs> you, you achieve Collaborate. more. Collaborate, yeah. As a group. Yeah. <laughs> um, if things get too busy and stressful, get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only, only be aggressive when you're in defence. Don't go into attack. Yes. Um, I can't say there's too many immediately directly applicable things. For example, when a wasp attacks a hive, the bees surround the wasp and create friction to the point that they'll actually cook the wasp alive. Um, Haven't found that a technique that I have (laughs) applied in my daily life. But, you know, there's still time one day. You can pick and choose. Yeah. (laughs) It's not all or nothing. (laughs) I mean, they're very good planners. They, I mean, the whole honey thing is based most most of the honeybees we have are european and so the honey is all about making sure they've got enough food for the winter so storing it up so plan ahead very sustainable <laughs> until people come and harvest yeah. their yeah honey yes mm. exactly so um most beekeepers are, i mean the whole art to beekeeping is harvesting just enough to make sure the bees don't swarm because that's very unpopular especially if you're living in a in a neighbourhood, um, uh, but not taking too much honey and putting the bees into stress. So getting that balance. Mm. Nice. Mm. But obviously beekeeping is only one aspect of your life and you, you seem to have lots and lots of different interests and yeah. pursue them um, in really interesting ways, which is you know one of the big reasons we wanted to talk to you. And on the topic of purpose and finding purpose in, in your life as a human... I would. I think we'd be really interested to know what your thoughts on that are, because you mm. do seem to have these different channels of of interest yeah. in your life, and and not a lot of people do. They'll, you know, a lot of people will have one job, and that's that's everything for them. Mm. You've got a few things going on. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question, really. Um, I think for me, the two major things that inspire me or trigger my curiosity I want I want to be useful I guess in some some capacity and um got very I spent a lot of my 20s traveling in developing countries and was just very it took as many opportunities to uh, expose myself to cultures that were completely different to the way I lived um uh, and had been brought up and was very stimulated and inspired by that um and I've always I think I said it when I was 16 I've always just wanted a job that allows me to sleep at night like just a sense that you're contributing came from a family of teachers and unionists and (laughs) people who always strongly believe that you know you got an education in order to give something back to society and contribute which I guess is a bit like a bee um (laughs) yeah but I've also grown up around musicians and artists and creative people and I think uh, I've always been torn between two worlds of um, it, working in developing countries uh, has been incredibly stimulating and working on programs to prevent HIV and uh, improve uh, access to family planning and um, reduce malaria. Got malaria twice during that time. Um, <laughs> Single-handedly yeah. trying to let's get malaria out <laughs> I'll of the, yeah, it. I'll have it. <laughs> it's really not how it works. <laughs> martyrdom (laughs) Um, yeah I think also being part uh, living in Melbourne is just wonderful and being part of a creative community and being able to delve into uh, explore ideas and and, uh, spend a Monday uh, chatting with people about the meaning of life and and Mm. purpose and how you find that purpose is also um, really rich and rewarding so think my my life is generally navigating between those two spaces and mm. every now and then they they align and you can do both simultaneously and sometimes they take you to complete opposite ends of the world as well mm. yeah you said you when you were talking about it you're like oh I've been you know there's been times I've been torn like between creative work and then work that helps others I really relate to that as well yeah. I uh, play music and write and also um, have worked in community services mostly yeah, so and um, Joe and I were talking before this show about how um, at the moment I'm looking for work and I feel this pressure to to present myself as mm. someone for whom community services is my life and mm. all the work that I do. Mm. And mm. then when you're sort of in creative spaces, there's this thing like can I make a living from this? Can, I, can mm. this be all that I do? Mm. And I've been recently thinking about how 
does it need to be one thing or the other and why is it that that there's this feeling that I have mm. that it should be yeah. have you ever thought about that in yeah balancing the, the areas that you're interested in uh, yeah I yeah. think it's a very old old narrative as well I think I don't. I think most humans are complicated enough to have multiple facets and multiple passions and outlets. Yeah. And more than that, your creative work makes you better in your community service work, and exactly. your community service work gives you so much understanding and, and engagement with society that feeds into your creative work. And yeah. for me, neither would ever be enough. Um, mm. And I think both end up benefiting from the other as well. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think slowly when you are, yeah, there's a sort of sense when you walk into a job interview, often you have to be like, every moment in my life was leading up to this <laughs> interview. This is my sole passion. I will give you everything I have. It's a very feudal kind of like. <laughs> yeah. I will serve you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think we're seeing more and more employers who understand a multifaceted human who has a life outside of nine to five is going to be more well-rounded and bring more to the table Mm. and have more perspective than someone who just lives and breathes for that one job. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I do feel like it seems to be getting more like that and it does help to be somewhere like Melbourne where a lot more people I meet are balancing out those kind of diverse interests that seem incompatible but as you say, are a lot more compatible than they seem. And you develop skills in both areas that end up contributing across um, and vice versa. It's Everyone benefits, I think. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think there's one overriding purpose that, that connects all of the various things that you do and the interests that you have for yourself or even for, for everybody, for every human being? Or, or are there just, there's just a, a multitude of purposes and you kind of pick and choose whichever one takes your fancy? Yeah, it depends how deep and how pur- <clears throat> purist you want to go on it. I think ultimately uh, there's no – like some people strive for fame or making a mark and I think there's very few people whose mark, quote-unquote, lasts more than a generation. You know, they might be famous within their lifetime or – or make an impact in their lifetime, but within a generation, they've they've disappeared. Also, there's no benefit to a dead person. <laughs> People yeah. in a hundred years' time remember them or not. <laughs> I think ultimately, or you know, whether you're uh, religious or spiritual or, or atheist, the ultimate goal maybe is to reduce pain uh, and increase joy in the time mm-hmm. that you're alive. And, and aiming for anything other than that is. Yeah temporary at best I think. Mm. they're pretty fundamental things yeah um yeah you, you can't get much more fundamental than the feelings you're having in a certain yeah. moment or over a long period of time and you might be a nihilist but if you drop drop a brick on your foot pain is a very real <laughs> thing that's very hard to philosophize your way around um i mean some people try but uh, <laughs> it's true yeah. um and it's interesting you say like um you know, reduce pain and increase like enjoyment in life. And I think this is the interesting thing about um, for people who work in creative fields, um, there can be a social understanding or implication that Mm. they're very Mm self-indulgent. And and then, you know, for myself, I've thought about books that I've read, times I've been to comedy shows or things I've watched, films or things that were um, affecting and moving for me. They significantly contribute to like purpose, meaningful, purposeful, meaningful lives and just um, provide something which is essential to kind of human having a, a good human life yeah yeah so you're still in service a lot of the time when you're uh, someone in that field yeah, yeah absolutely I mean most of us live in Melbourne because it's this cultural creative hub mm. and I mean there's debates about how people live sustainable lives as creatives when they're contributing to that because we don't have an economic system that ne- necessarily mm. recompenses people for the amount of value that they produce back to the community that they're they're in um, that's a debate we could have for a good couple of hours yeah. about how that all works. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I guess that's another thing. How do you tangibly know who you're reaching and how you're, uh, what joy you're creating mm. through that? Um, but I think you can only really know it implicitly from yeah. the experiences you've had enjoying other people's creative work. Yeah. Mm. And, and I completely agree. That's a massive amount of the value I get in life is mm. just enjoying things that have been created by other people. Yeah, mm. yeah. <clears throat> 
And we're social beings. Uh, the only, I mean, I think for me, the big thing in comedy is when you hear someone articulating an experience that you've had and they've put it into words when you didn't know, you'd never had that conscious ability before to, to articulate it. And that is a beautiful moment of empathy and togetherness and yeah, so so I think art is often doing that, connecting mm. people and, and making them realise they're not alone in this this um, this meat prison. Well, talking of meat prisons, <laughs> try try and link this. To, um, <laughs> so so I think you know I completely. I think we're all there's a consensus there about the value of, of creativity in life. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the value of, of science in our lives. I, I think there's there's a clear value in in the many advances that science has made in, in how we live and you mm. know longevity of life and health benefits mm. and the technology that surrounds us. But I was interested to hear your thoughts on the value of living a scientific life and, mm. and thinking scientifically and being aware of scientific facts and how that in, might inform your day-to-day life, if yeah. at all. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's huge. Science is such a – it's this word we bandy around as if it's got a single – identification and it's one of those things like like scientists discovered blah you're like who who what did they how where were they what what was the process they used um but we're very happy to sort of i don't think any other field would get away with that level Mm. of anonymity or that assumed kind of objectivity slash that's the that's the final word on that topic because a scientist found it Mm. kind of thing um science is uh yeah gosh it's it's a huge debate and lots of people are having it but um some people feel very negatively towards science being a mechanism of of destroying mysticism destroying spirituality destroying um taking away value and purpose by clarifying what the the sort of blurry edges that we might have associations of feelings or meanings or Mm. um you know questioning the existence of god or questioning life after death those sorts of things but for a lot of us it's there's this incredible joy in understanding more about who you are, how you work, the incredible unlikeliness that humans ever evolved to be what we are. And there's an enormous amount of fear that comes with the revelations of the impact we're having with the lives that we're leading. Mm. But ignoring it is not going to go make it go away. (laughs) learning scientific facts you know things that have been discovered and reasoned about the universe it it does give you that sense of awe Mm. um but i would also agree that science is is limited Mm. in the sense that provides lots of knowledge Mm. arguably a life devoted to acquiring knowledge and understanding our surroundings better is a life pretty well lived if we're talking about purposes that's not a bad purpose for existence it might be a fairly defining purpose of of being a human Mm. Um, but science seems as if it can't do everything for Mm. us for example Mm. on on a day-to-day basis Mm. I'm not referring to my scientific knowledge to make choices about the things that I do that day you know Mm. the kind of people that I spend time with or the life decisions that I make Mm. seems to be an arena that science it's it's just not the arena of science some areas would probably give it a red hot go (laughs) (laughs) irrespective of what the decision was yeah do do you think in that way do do you do you do you refer do you do you sort of rely on your scientific knowledge to help you live in, in in a broad way or is it quite confined to the jobs that you're doing yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I th- and it's it's more of an ongoing journey, isn't it? I think um, I am always interested in what science might have to say about the way I'm behaving. Um, mm-hmm. I love, I love, love, love behavioral science and and cognitive science and the science around biochemistry uh and um <laughs> i'm gonna take the conversation in interesting <laughs> so science is essentially knowledge and tracking trends and and um discovering what is observable ultimately at the at the core of it mm. um and we've seen you mentioned smartphones before we've seen the rise of the quantified self the the movement where you can start tracking moods you can start tracking mm. heart rates you can start tracking blood pressure you can start developing ongoing data sets using scientific methods about your own self mm. sleeping patterns all the rest um 
And, and then it gives, it's up to you what you do with that information. Um, and some people love this and some people hate this. Mm. Um, for me, I have a period tracking app. Uh-huh, great. <laughs> I was like, do I talk about this? Yeah, yeah bring it up. <laughs> um, yeah. But the period tracking app allows you just to sort of plot in how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis where you're at. And uh, the, like, and it, you start to understand what's going to happen, like anticipate what's going to happen with your body. And there's a day 26 in the mm. month where I will wake up and at some point that day be like, it's it's all rubbish, it's terrible, that person's horrible, I'm going to end that friendship, I'm going to call and quit that job. Yeah. I'm gonna, and then you, track, you look at the app and you're like, oh, I see, this is my PMS Absolutely. day. Yeah. Let's hold off making major life decisions until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that has a real consequential. Massive, though. massive. I would, oh, the damage I could do in my life if I didn't have that, that piece of data. Yep. So in that aspect, we, we've all got this perception that we have this pure capacity to interpret the world that our feelings are rational, that our thought processes are entirely within our control, but yep. we're just giant chemistry sets. Mm, um, mm. And if we have a little bit of data around that, it can really help you maybe not to <laughs> so much your own life. <laughs> but you can, you can put things in perspective, that's for sure. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, but it's really interesting that you say, like, there is this idea that we are capable of pure sort of objective mm. relating yeah. to other people to the world mm. and um that kind of experience for women of that cycle mm. um really challenges that idea because mm. the same set of circumstances that might have been yeah. not just tolerable but enjoyable mm. a week ago mm. become something that is like intolerable frustrating yeah. and um you know seems comp- compelling that you, you should like change something yeah and so it's it's interesting that um because of that mm. hormonal cycle women are walking around engaging with the world i can't generalize yeah. to all women but i know myself and anecdotally yeah other women i speak with yeah that there is this understanding that um the way that you're relating and and mm. the information the data the stimuli that you're getting is is going to be mm processed in different ways yeah and i mean that's it's literally everyone there's a thousand things impacting all of our hormone level literally everybody not just just women yeah i like that one because it's a very tangible one that you can almost time to a clock Uh um but i think understanding that single example just feeds into understanding that all of us are just a balance of of hormones and chemicals at any given moment and i mean mental health is a really fascinating one you're sort of talking about that bias we have of being rational, objective, yep. free will agents. It takes such, like, but it's so easy for any of those systems that are making us feel things or think things to get out of can out of mm. whack. And we've had hundreds of years of trying to well, well, stigma around mental health, but mm-hmm. understanding that it might be a single hormone or a single chemical can, mm. uh, that will completely change your behavior and completely change your perception hopefully will destigmatize mental health and sort of improve lives for people more generally yeah i mean it shows how contingent and fragile our whole system of understanding and interpreting the yeah. world is yeah um because you know i similar i think to how your perceptions and and judgments might be different when you're sort of a certain point of the, the menstrual cycle. Mm. You know, if I haven't had a good meal, <laughs> I, you know, I've been known to oh, sabotage yeah. really good friendships. <laughs> yeah. um, was... And uh, who, but who's to say that that when you're in that state, you're not perceiving more clearly? And <laughs> <laughs> Is this the real world? <laughs> I should end all my friendships. This is bad. Someone did a study a couple of years ago tracking uh, the cycle of a day of a judge. Uh, and blood sugar levels. So direct, straight after lunch, the, the the judge actually went more easy on people and the further away from his last meal he got, the more likely people were to be sentenced. Oh, my gosh. And 
we rely wow. on these systems. Like we've built all of these systems saying they're objective, saying they're rational, mm-hmm. trying to put these like very firm benchmarks, but it's all subjective. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and we're all just biological organisms. <laughs> does, does that ever make you feel alienated or, or weird or kind of, you know, existentially worried? <laughs> that, that, that just this, this mass of cells and experiences that... I think self-doubt is very healthy and knowing that we're fragile and that we're so so easy manipulated by our environment and our, our own biology um, <clears throat> can mean that it can make you, I mean, it, it depends what you do with that information, but it can make mm. you more collaborative. Like maybe I need, like there's two hours at the moment of every day where I, I'm staring at a page with my comedy show going, I can't believe I've done this. I cannot believe I have encouraged people to go out of their way to sit in a darkened room for an hour to listen to this piece of twaddle. <laughs> At the same time, great show. You <laughs> please, please come see my piece of twaddle. Um, self-promotion is my strong point. Now, <laughs> I think anyone who's made something or like you hear this from yeah. like everyone who like puts something out there mm. of their own creation is this huge level of kind of like this is not good enough yeah but there's a lot of conditions there's a lot of conditional influence on that like what do you say is good enough if you grow up seeing this kind of comedy or these kind of people doing comedy and then Mm. you're like i'm going to put this out there yeah it's science comedy or whatever that's it and it encourages you to get external input and i've just been thinking a lot lately about art as a conversation Mm. and we like to we celebrate artists as individuals who go into a room and create this thing by themselves and come out with this perfect isolated unique little piece of of value Mm. or art Mm -hmm. Um, and it just isn't that every piece of art is part of a conversation you're responding to other arts and the influence that other arts have had there's not a single book that has been written that multiple people didn't help write and collaborate and contribute and edit mm-hmm. and stimulate and inspire in some way mm. um so i think i'm just and you only know comedy is like the test of comedy is you don't know if something's funny until you stand on a stage and you say it in front of people and they mm. tell you very quickly yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. so it's like it's a collaborative thing from day one yeah which takes a lot of the pressure off being some uh, being someone that creates something because you're not like this is personally linked to me and who mm. I am and mm-hmm. it's like expression of my you know soul purpose and yeah. everything it's part of this conversation that people are having it's a patchwork it's yeah. a, it's a response of a call and response and yeah mm. and it me- means for you as an artist you put the focus back on the process and go my job is to share and to get feedback and to keep reiterating, uh, iterating on this until until it becomes something that I'm mm. I'm happy with. Mm. Um, I interviewed Frank Woodley a few years ago, and mm. he says he writes a show. He does twelve pr- like trial preview shows. By the end, maybe thirty or forty percent of the original show goes into mm. the final show. It's like artists wow. are often, like the best artists are often just the hardest workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people mm-hmm. who just dedicate themselves to that iteration process and really listen to their audiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's important just to get something down on the yeah. paper and mm-hmm. then and then you can start judging it and editing it. Yeah. W- which part of that process do you get most satisfaction from? Yeah, it's a good question. Um I'm I'm not very good at writing comedy. Again, please come and see my show. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a lot of comedy theory and there's a lot of <clears throat> sort of manuals about how you write a joke. You're like, take this bit, take this bit, bang it together in this particular way and get a punchline out the other end. I can't do it. And yeah. I've read those manuals. Um, Tim Ferguson's got a great book called The Cheeky Monkey that gives you a lot of it. And you know, if you're if you're sitting in a in a in a editor's in a writer's room and you've got six hours to get a sketch out by the end of the day, you need those tools. I'm more of a like a I'll be cycling somewhere and a stupid thought will pop into my head mm-hmm. and I'll giggle and I'll write that down. That's like that's pure inspiration. Yeah, that, that's great. It's mm. nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not. Uh, yeah, when you got a deadline, <laughs> you're like just going on a lot of bike rides. <laughs> yeah, so many bike rides into the forest, never to come back. <laughs> um, I love that moment when the punchline occurs to you and there's this feeling in your stomach that tells you. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And some most of the time, other people will find that funny. Sometimes they'll be like, "What were you smoking?" <laughs> <laughs> but that's well. I suppose if you find it funny, you find it genuinely funny. Then the yeah. chances are someone else probably will. Yeah. And ultimately, do you really want to be doing comedy that you don't find funny? So, but other people yeah. do. Like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think when when I see someone who finds something genuinely funny, like just sometimes just someone else enjoying something mm. is funny and yeah. fun to be around. Yeah. Even if I'm like. I don't know why that's funny to them, but yeah. I love that they're just finding that really amusing. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. if you see somebody else laughing at something that they clearly find funny and you don't get immediately, you know that there's some funniness in the room that yeah. perhaps you haven't tagged on yeah. to. And you can go looking for it. And, and if you're open, yeah. you can find it. And that's great. Yeah, that's it. And there's no, there's no thing on earth that literally every person will find funny. What you find funny is this like conglomeration of your entire lived experience that will shape that. And I I think comedy is often the final frontier. Like I I lived in Uganda for two years. I learned a fair bit of Lusoga. Um, I'd be around my Ugandan uh, colleagues and friends and they'd crack a joke and they would be on the ground (laughs) in tears. This joke was so funny. And I was like, I understand all the words. Like I get the concept, but I don't know why that's funny. Just, and you know, that's because I'm not, not Ugandan. I haven't lived there my whole life. Like it, it's feeding from some invisible context that they all get. I, I was not part of that. <laughs> Amazing. So it's really culturally conditioned. Yeah. What is actually funny. Yeah. In and this instance. Totally. Yeah. And I think as a comedian, your job is to negotiate. Do you make something that's going to be accessible mm. to a lot of people or do you go after your audience and make something that might be funnier but less people will be right mm-hmm. out of it yeah and was it was it natural for you to choose science as the kind of topics that you would be talking about in your comedy that's a good question um uh i'm yeah i'm just definitely fascinated i think you just write comedy about whatever you feel what interests you and you're passionate about and you think is important and i think the constant the <coughs> constant negotiation of a life between your impulses and your instincts and and knowing that we uh, <laughs> science has reasons and explanations for why you're doing what you're doing um, is almost a tragic comedy in mm. itself. <laughs> oh, so that's sort of quite meta. Yeah. You could, yeah, you could talk it, doing comedy about the science of comedy. Yeah. That, that would twist some melons <laughs> in a very serious way. I like I that. mean, my last show was about traveling. I spent my 20s working and traveling around developing countries, teaching people how to avoid parasites. And the show is about the eight parasites are contracted in that period of time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're imperfect beings. You know? yeah. Science gives us this manual of perfection of what we should be doing, and but we're, we're human. <laughs> right. Um, the, I'm curious about uh, how you first started doing comedy did you do it in Melbourne and did was there a moment where just like I'm going to do this because <laughs> it's um when I see people on stage doing stand-up I think like I are you insane it, well it's um it's hard to start because like you say you don't know if something's funny until you stand up and offer it mm. and then in doing that like did you find that there were welcoming spaces for you to experiment with that yeah. as an as a someone new to it when you were new yeah, yeah. oh gosh uh i've loved comedy my entire life mm. um but moving to melbourne I, the first thing i did when i found out i was moving to melbourne was check the dates of the melbourne international comedy <laughs> festival <laughs> um but for the first few years of living here I, I started reviewing comedy and I wrote about 300 reviews, went to Edinburgh, reviewed oh. Adelaide Fringe, um, was doing like, going to about 50 to 60 shows, a festival, Whoa. just absolutely immersing myself. As a kind of a personal project or for publication with a particular um, um, The reviews were just my way of getting free tickets to feed my comedy right. addiction. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea and I would love to steal that. Yes. <laughs> um, so did you publish them like online or something like that? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, with Broadway Baby and Heckler. Uh, Just whoever okay. would take me on so and, right. and give me access to as much comedy <laughs> as I could possibly see. Brilliant. Were you scheming the whole while? That, no. Uh, no. To do it. No, yeah. it's, it's funny. A few friends are like, I knew you'd become a comedian. Yeah. I was like, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, I just, I've always, I think I just wrote jokes and then there was a big pile of jokes and one day on my to-do list and I'm very good doing what's on my to-do list generally I'd wrote do a five-minute set and 
The first time I, I absolutely terrified, can't think of anything scarier to yeah. do, but that's also why you do it. Um, I was going to this comedy club. I was going to do my first five-minute set, and I, I parked my bike, and I walked towards the door, and I walked straight past it and up the end of the street and got an ice cream and sat and cried on a chair. No. I can absolutely imagine myself doing that. Oh, God. The, the first place I actually succeeded in doing my first full five-minute set was... Um, I suppose they did. <laughs> yeah. Got to the car park, didn't work. Next time made it to the door frame. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a room called uh, Hashtag Yes All Women And cool. uh, it's really scary It's a mm. scary world And you know the saying You can't be what you can't see um, mm-hmm. Comedy is p- p- mm-hmm. mostly male dominated And mm-hmm. it, it, it is changing And that's so exciting mm-hmm. But that is genuinely actually the first place I felt safe and welcome enough To get through my first five minute set um, Brilliant uh, Which is always that like we can be objective and rational, like you are just as capable of this as everybody else. Mm-hmm. But it's so scary doing comedy anyway and doing it when in a room when there's a 12-person 12, 12 lineup, mm-hmm. 11 of them are men, and the last guy on stage just did some like shady rape jokes mm-hmm. and, and people in the room laughed. And you're like, that's mm-hmm. not a welcoming place to get up and, and do your jokes about caterpillars and bees, <laughs> don't really feel like you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. absolutely, like, there's there's many layers to it. Not having role models, yeah. not being able to look on stage and see women doing comedy about a diverse range of yeah. interests. Yeah. And then especially, like, the kind of open mic scene can attract people who may not be critically analysing yeah. their approach <laughs> and the way that they're speaking and talking. And yeah. there's a real tendency to underestimate how isolating or intimidating it feels oh, to have jokes at the expense of women yeah. in a room where you are then about to go up and, yeah. like... And if yep. you're the if you're the only woman in the lineup, you then become representative of your entire gender, which is no pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's amazing female comedians out there, and there's terrible female comedians because women are people. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> have diverse abilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. But you still did it. You you were still driven to do the comedy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Was it's, it was it just the challenge, the fear to break through? It's. If you're on stage and a room full of people laugh, it's one of the most beautiful and amazing feelings you'll ever experience. Mm. Deeply, <laughs> Joe's looking really wistful. <laughs> and, <sounds> nice. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> you feel like you've given something to, to people, and there's a joy, and it's it's really special. And it only lasts mm. for a couple of seconds, and it's <laughs> and it's rare. And um, uh, quite a few comedians talk about comedy being addictive, and I I thought when when I started that it was because of the highs, but it's mm. often the lows. Like you can never fully predict what's going to happen in a room. You mm. never know who's in the audience. You never know what they just saw. You don't know how you're going to perform. Even what happened that week and the news affects the room's vibe and everything else. Um, and when it goes badly, you just get this desire to get on stage and fix it <laughs> and yeah. to do it again. And if you've had that, those few seconds of joy when a room has just involuntarily lost it, You'll, you'll remember that for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, you've created something really special and different to everything else that goes on in the yeah. world. This kind of amazing dynamic between you and this room where you're all sharing the same space. The same, same energy kind of, and yeah. understanding. Uh, it's really special and it's super temporary as well. And you can definitely stare into the long, long dark tunnel of existentialism wondering what the heck you're doing and, and does or why this matter. But mm. ultimately the things that make life worth living are intangible. And yeah. And perhaps the things that, yeah, and the things that matter, the things that matter, in in a sense. I know that doesn't make say anything, but um, the things that we decide matter do matter to us because we've decided that they're important. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And everything's temporary. Literally everything is temporary. So, well, yeah. (laughs) A few seconds of laughter if it's just as, yeah, on the broader scale of things. Mm. It's not a bad way to fill time. Yeah, that's quite worse. a quite a Buddhist concept that everything is temporary. Is it one that you encounter in the scientific world as well? Like, yeah, it's yeah. My, it's my motto. So mm. this two shall pass. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, it's that's the I think the big thing that divides people. Some people say science takes away uh, the meaningfulness of life by questioning an afterlife by questioning there being any form of greater purpose and questioning there being a god those sorts of things um but other people like for me it's the exact opposite knowing how rare and special and temporary our existences are is almost what gives it and how unlikely that any of us were born Mm. gives it that specialness and this meaning Mm. yeah i've that's been my impression of like some aspects of science is this curiosity to encounter the observable world with an open mind um, which does I think potentially open a person up to the mystery of things because Mm. it seems to me like what we think we know from science is always changing and evolving itself uh, which can either be an indication of um, doubt or confusion Mm. or it can Mm. be an indication of like remaining open-minded to having new interpretations of what we can observe yeah 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 Yeah. absolutely (laughs) we got deep (laughs) that's the idea yeah uh, I, i think i have alternated between finding that quite depressive and quite uplifting mm. on, on different you know oh, yeah. sometimes i will see it as this wonderful incredible natural miracle that that life came from nothingness and you know you've got consciousness this kind of you know technicolor phenomenal thing that we don't understand mm. and conversely everything's just contingent and cause and effect and is meaningless I, i've sort of been in in each of those territories Mm -hmm. and I guess a lot of people can't tolerate the idea that there is just you know that there is just the kind of objective material facts yeah and they will uh be more drawn to different interpretations of of the world yeah um I mean do do you do you have any any sort of spiritual or, or religious beliefs at all Ooh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm an atheist um, and I've had friends sort of be like, well, how do you, where, where's the meaning come from that? And I, I think I it made the sort of call uh, when I was 14. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is near um, Sydney and it's just a stunning part of the world um, and sort of. Uh, definitely, I, I prayed hard. I did all the good things as a kid because we had we had scripture at my school. Um, oh. One of our scripture teachers sort of spent a lot of the class screaming that he was not um, not uh, what's the word evolved from a monkey, and that was ridiculous. And how dare oh, we debase um, humanity by mm. suggesting we had animalistic roots? And that actually did more to <laughs> uh, entrench my atheism. <laughs> I think the the defining moment, I was about 14 and I just climbed to the top of this cliff and just looking across the mountains, this incredible expanse of of trees and nature and that sense of how deeply insignificant I was Mm. and realising how deeply dependent I was on those trees and this environment for my own survival um, was sort of the moment I came to uh, (laughs) the realisation that well, becoming an atheist and um, if if I was – I don't talk in spiritual terms much, but the sort of philosophy that of Gaia, of, of life mm. and the earth being a single organism and all of us being interdependent and entirely, yeah, needing everything around us is deeply humbling and extremely beautiful for mm-hmm. me, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to go into a space where I'm criticizing Christianity, but the idea that humans rise above everything else and everything else on earth is in subservience to humanity has been a big challenge from a from an environmental and a sustainability aspect. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, there's a thousand different ways to interpret Christianity. And I know a lot of Christians who who find a lot of um, motivation for environmentalism in their in their belief. Mm-hmm. They're very yeah, malleable, I guess, yeah. in that capacity. That's sort of where I'm coming from. Yeah, because there is a lot of um, unquestioned social assumptions about humans and how humans interact with animals and with well, with other animals, mm. non-human animals, and with nature and the p- ecosystem and things like that. Mm. And a lot of those assumptions, even for people who wouldn't ascribe themselves as Christian, have been influenced by a mm. Christian yeah. philosophy, Christian 
thinking yeah. in that sense of like we are the caretakers mm. and but by that we mean we have control over mm. these domains yeah. yeah yeah and i think there are lots of other ideologies religious or, or not that feed into that cultural yeah. belief system that the we are special yeah. um, and we're, we're above every mm. other kind of life form or yeah. organism. And, you know, even as individuals, mm. we, we sort of believe that we're special and, and perhaps mm. are better than yeah. other people, you know, yeah. stronger, um, faster, yeah. <laughs> faster, faster, funnier. Not, not, not necessarily referring to myself. No. <laughs> um, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> like you might be, but... <laughs> just, I'm not going to roll it out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah actually... I was saying that sometimes, you know, it's easy to to feel a bit down about being living in this sort of cold, meaningless universe. But mm. but actually, the idea of of feeling like you're connected to this big yeah. organic system and feeling humbled by that that does sound appealing. Mm. And that's that's yeah. nice. Yeah, and it's I think it, you can go either way. I mean, some people feel that sci- science strips away meaning, um, but the idea for me. Uh, it's called positive nihilism basically that there is no manuscript about how your life's going to play out there is no determinism your your life lived experience uh, hasn't been pre-written by by a higher higher power that the lives we're given we are able and we're, we're the ones who are able to make meaning out of that and we get to determine what we do that and you know for me the the goal is to increase joy and decrease pain Mm -hmm. (laughs) within my immediate um reach of influence that's really powerful and empowering to me and I can I can see how you can go either way on that Mm. that's my take on it where do you find the practical tools to um increase joy and decrease pain Oh, have a bit of a sit in the sun. Yeah, nice. go to the beach. Yeah, yeah I like that. Too. <laughs> have a Watch cup some of comedy. Tea. <laughs> yeah, comedy. Um, yeah, do yeah. I guess the whole try decrease uh, the actions within your your capacity um, that might be causing harm mm. to, to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a thoroughly imperfect specimen. Most of us. I have a iPhone in my bag and mm. I have a disposable coffee cup on the on the bench here (laughs) um but the more you can mold your behaviors to reduce negative impacts on others and we just don't have the excuses that we might have had 20 or 30 years ago like we can we can watch a documentary about the conditions of the factories where we're buying our cheap Mm. clothes we can we know how much plastics in the oceans we Mm. we know what food choices we're making are going to uh like yeah impact populations that we can't immediately see we we mm. don't live in the bubble that we had had um mm. the advantage of being in 20 30 years ago mm. uh, which again very fucking depressing <laughs> <laughs> but we are now blessed with that kind of consciousness and, and yeah. the awareness that hopefully allows us to make informed decisions yeah exactly yeah and those sort of old notions of tribalism of, of national identity they're all melting away and mm. more capacity to empathize with people from on the other side of the world absolutely we're out of time i feel like there's so much more we could talk about yeah but it's been really interesting chatting with you and really fun yeah. so yeah. thank you thanks it's been, guys it's been uh, maximally pleasurable in <laughs> <laughs> yeah minimum pain, <laughs> minimum pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks for having me You've been listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You can download the podcast by searching for Dialogues on your podcast app. And email us on dialogues3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Just search Dialogues 3CR.